This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Robots Radio presents... In 2005, director Mike Newell gave the world a pivotal film in the franchise that bewitched us all. In 2020, we continue our walk through an experimental line of bourbons. The film is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The whiskey is Jefferson's Pritchard Hill finish. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the fourth in the Harry Potter series, The Goblet of Fire. Brad, I am really excited to jump into this one today. We we did Prisoner of Azkaban last week, which we both agreed is, is probably the best film in the series, you know, from a strictly filmmaking standpoint. And I said last week that I, I felt really conflicted about both the third movie and the fourth movie. And the reason I feel conflicted about this one is that when I first saw it, I was like at the prime age. I was 14 years old when this movie came out. You know, I may have just turned 15 and I it it just hit me. It was the first movie in the franchise that really dealt with the fact that these are teenagers who have hormones, who are going through puberty, who are angry with each other for no reason. Like this movie on a teen movie level just hit me. And I was it was my favorite Harry Potter movie for a long time. So what you're saying is this was like the breakfast club of the Harry Potter universe that finally took teenagers seriously. Absolutely. And and now watching it back, I'm like, oh, this one's kind of rough in places. And so I have weirdly conflicting thoughts about this one, too, because I'm fighting against my own heart and my own past self who loved this movie at a time. I don't want to give too much of my, you know, my opinion on this movie away right up front. But I'll just say this was a very different rewatch experience than Prisoner of Azkaban. Search your heart, Bob. You know it to be true. This movie is garbage. <laughs> do you really think I, it's do you really think it's garbage? Uh it's close. Wow. It's close to being garbage. I don't know, man. This is such a weird movie. Like there's certain moments of this movie that I'm like, wow, that was like perfect. It was really beautiful. I think there's some beautiful shots uh that honestly kind of mimic Quaron in like taking these Big, beautiful, sweeping, cinematographic, just beautiful moments. But overall, the direction of this movie is confusing. Yeah. You know, there's, and I I will say, in Mike Newell's defense, this book has so much stuff happening in it. Just from a pure content-wise, it is a fire hose of content that I'm sure, you know, Newell read the book and was like, uh, how am I supposed to get this all in in like two and a half hours? So the funny thing is, this director, Mike Newell, is very much not Alfonso Cuaron. And we're going to talk about that. Like, just on a strictly talent level, the man is not Alfonso Cuaron. However, the rumor that has floated around for years is that Mike Newell never read the book and didn't care to. And I think that kind of plays into a lot of the flaws in this movie. 
And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I am not the guy who says, well, if you'd read the book, the blah, 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 because I don't care about that. You shouldn't have to read a book to appreciate a movie. And Brad, I will say that I completely agree with you. When I bought this book, it you know, at the time, I think it was the longest book I'd ever read. Because I remember saying, like, I finished a book that was that long. This book is just, I mean, a lot of the information in this book is just needless information. And you have to cut so much out to make a compelling movie. And I think that they did a pretty good job of retaining what needed to be retained and trying to strike that balance between plot, 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 and, hey, let's let these kids be kids for a little while. And so I have to say, like, from a scripting standpoint, I think they did an okay job adapting the book. But the the big flaw with this movie is that they have a guy at the helm in Mike Newell who just doesn't seem to know what he's doing sometimes. Yeah, it, like I said at the start, it's a very confusing movie because there's a lot of moments that are great. You know, there's moments where uh, Hermione is standing on the other side of the tent flap trying to encourage Harry. And it's a beautiful moment. And like that, that scene is just amazing. And yet there's also every single second that Rita Skeeter is in the film. Oh, my gosh. It's and terrible. you just want to like gouge your eyes out. It, it's just brutally, brutally bad in certain parts. And so like be, before we get any further, Bob, I feel like we're missing an important segment of Film and Whiskey podcast. What, are we missing anything? You know, I think we're missing a segment that we like to call Brad Explains, which, Brad, uh, it's America's favorite segment. I don't know if you were aware of that. I, I, I don't, I don't I think we've ever said that before. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Did the, the, the polls are in, folks. So Brad Explains is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that we have just watched. You know, and, and the, the purpose of this podcast is that a lot of times Brad is watching a classic film for the first time. And in this case, Brad has seen this movie quite a few times. And it sounds like we might get angry Brad, which is my favorite Brad to, to do Brad Explains because... His, his reviews are just tinged with sarcasm, and I love them. <laughs> so, Brad, will you break down for our listeners a spoiler-filled recap of the movie Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? Man, Bob, would I ever love to. <laughs> there this, he is. This movie. Man, and, and part of the problem is, and I'm going to talk about this later, is that in a lot of ways, this is one of the most important books in the Harry Potter franchise of all the seven books, because this this book transitions you from the childhood of Harry to like his final course and destiny of a showdown with Voldemort. Yeah. Yep. So like this book is so, so important that honestly, I wish they had given Mike Newell the prisoner of Azkaban and Quaron. <laughs> The Goblet of Fire. Yeah. Because if there's anything I wish, I really wish that this movie was great through and through. With that disclaimer aside, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is the fourth year for our stalwart heroes, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And the, the movie picks up with them attending the Quidditch World Cup. And so the Quidditch is a is a broom sport that is played where they chase a bunch <laughs> the, of quaffles the around. Quidditch. And, the, yeah, the the Quidditch. The, the Quidditch. <laughs> it's it's a it's a great time. Uh, uh, Mike Newell just moves us way past that really cool scene really really fast. We rush right on through it, and we get to see that after the the match that we didn't get to see, these evil people named the Death Eaters are killing people and causing mayhem, and they have these big pointy hoods, 
Um, and so they're they're running around and they put up this mark in the sky called the, the Dark Mark. And it's the mark of Voldemort when Voldemort was in power. And then we move on and they go to they go to Hogwarts. And so they get to Hogwarts and they find out that there's going to be this massive tournament that hasn't been around. It would kind of be like if the Olympics disappeared for 60 years and then they brought them back. And in this tournament, they're going to have different schools come to Hogwarts and the three schools are going to compete for this grand prize. And that in this tournament, there is one champion from each school. And of course, they have this massive magical goblet of blue fire that will decide who is worthy to, to compete in this championship. So once the day comes to choose the person, the goblet spits out three names, uh, Fleur de la Cour from, from Bobatons, Crum, Victor Crumb from Durmstrang, and there is Cedric Diggory from Hogwarts. And then, because it has to happen... Harry Potter's name gets shot out of the goblet <laughs> and and Michael Gambon gets really, really pissed about it. Like so angry. Harry Potter! And he starts Harry Potter. <laughs> uh yeah. So other than that, the movie's about them going throughout the year and Harry has to face these different tasks. He fights a dragon and he swims underwater looking like a like a he's got feet flippers for a while and and at the end of the movie, uh, well, I guess the, the important thing to know is that he makes a good relationship with their new Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, Professor Moody, um, who's kind of a crazy old coot that uh, fought Voldemort way back in the day. And he's a little bit whacked in the head, but he knows a lot about defending against the dark arts. And at the very end of the year, um, they're in the final competition for the Triwizard Tournament. And they go into this massive maze and they're trying to find the Triwizard Cup. You know, it's it's their symbol of victory. And so Harry fights his way through. Harry and Cedric make it together to the cup. And when they both grab the cup at the same time, they find out that it's a port key and it takes them to this graveyard. Uh, and once they're in the graveyard, they start looking around and they realize that this has been a trap that Voldemort has planned to get Harry alone so that Voldemort can be somewhat reincarnated to, into his full former powers. Um, in that moment when Voldemort realizes that that another person was brought along, he mercilessly kills Cedric Diggory, uh, takes Harry captive, is reincarnated, calls his Death Eaters back to himself, and a final duel ensues between Harry and Voldemort. Um, they fight, and somehow their wands mysteriously and magically connect. Harry's dead parents come out of the wand. They give Harry just enough time to get back to the port key. He gets the port key. He takes Cedric's body back to Hogwarts. And you find out there that Professor Moody had actually been a Death Eater in disguise. And he tries to kill Harry, but Dumbledore gets there just in time to save him and yell some more. And we find out that Voldemort has been reincarnated. And here we are at the end of the film, uncertain of what the future looks like now that the Dark Lord has been revealed and he has re-entered the picture fully. Yeah. You know, the crazy thing, Brad, is that I feel like this Brad Explains took twice as long as the Prisoner of Azkaban version of Brad Explains. And yet the plot in this movie is much more straightforward. Like, it's literally just all the stuff that's happening at Hogwarts is there's an Olympic-style competition. And in the background, all you need to know is, like, Voldemort is rising to power and he finagles a way to get Harry 
in, in his presence so that he can use his blood to reincarnate himself. That's pretty much, in a nutshell, the whole plot of the movie. And I think it's really interesting. And, and I don't want, I'm not psychoanalyzing you here, Brad, but I think that the reason that you can deliver a, a shorter Brad Explains on Azkaban, which is a way more complex plot, is that it's just such a more well put together movie. This one kind of whips you around from, oh, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go do a, a sequence of one of these Triwizard tournament challenges for 30 minutes. And then we're going to go have a dance at Hogwarts. And then we're going to see what's up with Voldemort. And everything kind of seems to have equal importance. And it's really hard to know for a lot of the movie what is filler and what's not. And I think that's why it, it kind of complicates things. And it makes this movie a lot less accessible than I remember it being. Because for the first probably hour and a half of the movie, it just kind of seems to be all over the place. Yeah, Bob, I, I really struggle with this movie. And I, I, I said this to Haley while we were watching it the other day. There's moments of the movie where he just rushes you straight through. It feels like you're moving at this breakneck pace and he can't wait to get you to the next scene. Yeah. And then you get to the next scene and he draws out some of the most meaningless, unimportant parts of the movie. You know, like when Harry is fighting this dragon, you know, he doesn't really fight it. He just runs away from it until he can escape from it. Right. But like Harry falls on the roof and he's reaching for his broom. And it, the, the sequence literally takes like two to four minutes in real time. And you're like, this doesn't matter. Like, this is probably one of the least important moments in the entire Harry Potter series. Why are we dwelling on this? Well, I think I figured it out a little bit, Brad. And it's because... Bob has cracked the code. I have. I've done... <laughs> Eureka! Here's my, uh, my hypothesis here, Brad. We talked last week about how Prisoner of Azkaban is about more than a mystery. But the way that it's delivered to you as the viewer is as a mystery story. The, the, the genre of delivering the information is like there's something afoot. We're trying to piece together clues. It's a mystery. And so everything that happens in that movie is making you second guess people. It's, it's keeping you on the edge of your seat. And while Goblet of Fire is certainly about more than just the Triwizard Tournament, the setup for the movie is here's a tournament. There's going to be three big challenges. And so we have to make these three huge action set pieces in the center of the movie. And so the, the genre that they decide to deliver the movie to you for the first two thirds of it is basically an action movie. Like you as the viewer are told that the most important things that are going to happen in this movie are these three big challenges. And so when they're not having challenges, subconsciously as a viewer, I'm like turning my mind off. I'm like, all right, this is just filler until we get to the next challenge. And I think that's what really dooms this movie because... You know, again, once we get to the third challenge, it all turns out to be a, like a switcheroo. Like those didn't matter at all. And it was just a way to get Harry and Voldemort's presence. But I think in the first two thirds of the movie, everything that's happening before the challenges start and in between the challenges, it just seems to drag because as a viewer, you're being subtly told that none of it matters. You, you know that it's not a mystery. You're not trying to piece things together. And so it's almost like. We go from these we go in peaks and valleys. Does that make sense? Oh, it it totally does. The the movie is just not sure what it's trying to be. And and I will say, I, I have given this movie a very hard time. There are a lot of great moments in this movie. And and I think that's what frustrates me about Mike Newell so much, is that it's not that he's a terrible director and has no idea what he's doing. There's certain moments in this film 
that are entrancing and fun. You know, that when when Moody comes in and he turns, uh, what's his face, Draco, into a weasel and McGonagall comes up and goes, what are we doing here? And he goes, uh, just a little bit of teaching. And she goes, is that a student? And he goes, no, it's a weasel. <laughs> like that moment is so funny. Like, that is the type of humor I wish Quarone had introduced a little more, you know, when we talked about, like, oh, yeah, there's some of the humor in, in Prisoner is just, like, very out of place. Yeah. So there, there's moments where I'm like, yeah, Mike Newell gets it. He Like, he's a good director. But the sum of all these parts don't add up to what they should be. Does that make sense? You know, it's like this movie is operating in, in like, three distinct genres. Like, there is the action sequences... There is the teen movie, and then there is the straight horror movie that ends that ends the film. And I have to say, Brad, like if I'm being honest with you, I think the last 45 minutes of this movie, I still think are phenomenal. Once they get into that maze, like this movie legitimately gets scary for a while. It is a scary horror film for a while. And, and Newell does a really good job of adding those horror touches here. And I also think that that especially the dragon sequence is really well choreographed, really well filmed. I think the dragon looks great. So some of those, you know, the Triwizard challenges are really well done. The problem is that it doesn't seem to be like a unified movie. It's almost like you watch a chapter that is action themed and then you get a completely different tone for the teen movie part. It's it's funny. It's awkward. It's McGonagall saying, put your hand on my waist and everybody laughing. (laughs) And it's trying to juggle all three of these things. But the problem is that they can't all be equally important. You know what I mean? Like when we watch a Christopher Nolan movie, we talk about how he's always intercutting between three plot elements that are happening at the same time. The, The climaxes of his movies are always intercutting between three separate stories. And he's always masterfully built them into being of equal importance so that when we cut to any one of them, we're not bored. And the problem with this movie is that it's trying to juggle the horror of Voldemort, the sports of the Triwizard Tournament, and the kids going through puberty, and they just don't seem to carry the same weight as each other. I think that we should probably talk about the acting performances in this movie, because we hmm. see some new characters get added. You know, so for me, I'm I'm kind of curious, out of like some of the newer characters or even some of the established, who did you really love in this movie, Bob? Well, uh, first, let's go established. I want to call out Emma Watson a little bit, because in Prisoner of Azkaban, I said that it really seemed like Daniel Radcliffe turned a corner. And even from the first movie, I think it was kind of obvious that Emma Watson was the best actor of the three main kids. But even already being the best of the three in terms of natural acting ability, I think she really goes up a notch in this movie. They, They finally give Hermione something of substance to do. And that scene at the Yule Ball where she just has kind of a meltdown and and lashes out at Ron, it's totally believable. I forget sometimes that with child actors or even young adult actors, we know they're acting and we kind of forgive it so that we can stay in the world of the movie and not get pulled out by their bad acting. But she's legitimately really, really good in this movie. She's way better than Daniel Radcliffe is, if I had to be honest with you. And I think it's worth noting when these child actors really take the leap to being legitimately good adult actors. Yeah, and Emma Watson definitely hits her stride in this movie. And and I would say, from what I remember of the rest of the films, she never really loses it. She she really is a great actress. 
And I, I think she probably is the best of the three. And I will say Daniel Radcliffe, you know, from what I know, he had a lot of personal issues going on at this point. But he I feel like he takes a step back in this movie. His face is often unreadable. He he doesn't express a lot of emotion. Um, you know, at the end of the film, I will say when when Cedric dies, his anger is real. Uh, but for the first, you know, four fifths of this movie, I just felt like you got a very emotionless Daniel Radcliffe, which is a little unfortunate because I, I think he could have, you know, if he had the same level of energy that he had in Prisoner, I really think his performance in this would have matched Emma Watson's. Well, and this is where you get you get into that really kind of intricate dance between director and actor. But I think this is another area where Mike Newell is just a step back for this franchise in terms of direction, because Quaron got some things out of Radcliffe that we didn't see before. And in this movie, it's like it, it kind of seems like Daniel Radcliffe is falling back on what he remembers from the first two movies and kind of coasting a little bit. And I especially noticed it in that climactic scene where after he's able to escape Voldemort and they take the port key back to the Triwizard Tournament and he flops on the ground with Cedric's dead body and he has to cry. It's it's like painfully bad fake crying. Patrick Dumbledore, what's happened? He's back. He's back. Voldemort's back. Cedric, he asked me to bring his body back. I couldn't leave him. Not that. It's all right, Harry. It's all right. And I'm like, oh, man, I actually struggle with the emotion of that scene because Radcliffe is so bad in that scene. The sad thing about that is everybody else reacts. They're fantastic. So so well, the guy Cedric's that plays dad. Cedric's dad is is dude, I mean, like, dude. talk about coming in and just like stealing the whole movie. That dude has like 20 seconds of screen time in the whole movie and just nails it. And yet, I, I th again, I think this is where I can't attribute all of it to Daniel Radcliffe's performance. And I will say the same thing for Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. This is the movie that people point to when they say that they hate Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. And my response is always watch Prisoner of Azkaban and watch Half-Blood Prince, because especially in Half-Blood Prince, Gambon is fantastic. And so when you have an actor playing the exact same role for three different directors, you, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt a little bit and wonder how much of it was just the direction that he was being given. In the third film, he was a little bit more subdued and he was more deliberate in his motions. And in this movie, he's running, he's flipping around. He's there's actually a shot where I, I don't remember what he's I think he's like pointing to the goblet of fire and it starts in front of him. And then he whips his whole body around and points dramatically to the goblet of fire. And I'm like, isn't Dumbledore like 100 years old? He can't move like this. It's just it's very bad continuity from the first three movies and I attribute all of that to Mike Newell as a director I just I don't like Gambon in this movie but I can't say that it's t entirely his fault either you, you know what Bob I will say that it's his fault because like you said earlier Mike Newell did not read the book when he made this movie Michael Gambon did not read a single one of the Harry Potter books in order to prepare for this role Hmm. And so I I'm sorry, dude, but that for me is the most damning of evidence against Michael Gambon. He went into this movie. He only read the script he was given and he decided what he thought Dumbledore should look like and do. And I just really struggle. And I know that he's a little bit better in the other films, 
But if he had read the books and gotten the spirit of who Dumbledore is and what he's about, I think he easily could have told, you know, Mike Newell, like, hey, man, like, this isn't who Dumbledore is. And so, yes, I agree with you that Mike Newell should have read the book and at least had an understanding of the spirit of Dumbledore and his character and how he approaches conflict and situations. So it's on Mike Newell as well. But I'm not going to take any of the blame off Michael Gambon either. Wow. Damning words about Michael Gambon. But before we get off the Mike Newell hate train, I do I do want to bring up one more new performance, and that is Rafe Fiennes as Voldemort. This is his first appearance in human flesh. And I have to say, before we get into Rafe Fiennes' performance, that sequence in the graveyard is probably the darkest moment in any Harry Potter movie. And when I say dark, I don't just mean dark. I mean, like, they so successfully portray, you know, black magic that it feels evil. Like, it, it feels evil watching this movie in parts. And I, like, I get very uncomfortable watching that sequence where Voldemort is resurrected. And I have to say, like, from a filmmaking standpoint, good on Mike Newell for, for doing that so well. And then you get Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. And for the first, you know, he's probably on screen for 10 minutes. And for the first eight minutes of his performance, it's like, wow, this is great. But then he's also walking this line between really, really terrifying horror and straight campiness. And I can never get a hold on, like, why is Mike Newell having him do some of these things? Because even in later films, Ray Fiennes is so much more straightforward as Voldemort. In this one, he's like, he's flipping around. He goes to touch Harry's head. <laughs> and make his scar hurt, and Harry's going, aha! And Voldemort's like, nyah, nyah! <laughs> like, what? What is going on in this movie? When Harry finally escapes, they cut back to Voldemort, and he goes, no! It, it's just such, it's like Mike Newell is is going back and forth between brilliant filmmaking and completely amateurish filmmaking, and it's the actors who suffer for it. Well, the the problem is, Bob, I, I realize he turns his major characters into circus ringmasters. Yes. Like, it feels like they are conducting this massive circus of a school or of a dark plot that Voldemort has. Like, it just feels like they're just cavorting around the set. Just you know, just grandiose, you know, just... Uh, it's just terrible. It's so well, I mean, there's, there's moments of this film where it doesn't even feel like Harry is the main character anymore. It seems like Harry in this movie is more in service to the plot than the movie is in service to the character of Harry. Even at the beginning of the film, the first introduction you get to Harry is that he wakes up in an unfamiliar place that's really never explained to us. And the first line is like, hey, when did you get here? Oh, I got here yesterday. Like, we didn't even watch Harry get to the place that we're supposed to be, like, in right now. Yeah, and this it, is this is the first time he does not have any scenes with the Dursleys. Right, which, and again, I don't need those scenes, but it doesn't even feel like it's told from his point of view in parts of the movie. And I really struggle with that, because this movie, it, it makes the character of Harry take a backseat to the plot. And I think that's where it really suffers. Well, I, I will say, not to get away from the graveyard scene too fast, I love Timothy Spall in that scene as Wormtail. Mm -hmm. Like, the way he moves from element to element of this spell that is going to reincarnate Voldemort, 
there's this tremor in his voice as he goes, bone of the father, unwillingly given. Yeah. Like you can tell that there's some sort of ritual about this that I think Timothy Spall does amazing in that scene. And so once again, you're like, is Mike Newell good? Because some of his actors receive seem to receive great direction and give a great performance. And then other ones, I, I will say, I don't mind Voldemort as much in the graveyard as you seem to. I think that the overacting almost helps establish him as this dramatic evil. Yeah. But it, it's I, what I'm trying to say is it's not as bad as Dumbledore. <laughs> well, and then the the final person we can talk about here is is Brendan Gleeson as Mad-Eye Moody, who on paper is the most cartoonish character. Like he's literally there to just chew scenery and that's it. And yet I think Gleeson does a fantastic job of keeping him about as grounded as you possibly can. Like he is a man with a mechanical eye who is constantly drinking polyjuice Magi- potion. Magical. Right. Well, I mean, but when you look at it, it looks like a spy camera in his head. <laughs> and, and I think, honestly, he fills that character out so well just in the subtlety of his performance that it it makes him a more well-rounded character than I think Moody even deserves to be, if that makes sense. I, I totally agree with you, Bob. I, I think moving from the books to the movie, like Moody is a really cool character in the books, but I think that Brennan Gleason's performance really takes it up to the next level. There, there's a there's a quality of care that he gives the character that you fall in love with Mad Eye Moody in this movie. And honestly, I'm going to compare it to the last movie. I love Remus Lupin, and he's one of my favorite characters. But I think that they gave Moody more airtime and more of an opportunity to establish himself that I love Moody. He connects with Harry in so many important ways and he shows a deep like gravitas to the dark arts that you start to get the sense that they're not just fighting boggarts anymore. Hmm. You know, there there's not just a troll in the dungeon anymore. You know, these defense against the dark arts professors until now have been somewhat playful and fun and and sure your first three years at Hogwarts, Defense Against the Dark Arts shouldn't probably be anything too serious. But that scene where he goes through the unforgivable curses. Give us a curse. Well, my, my dad did tell me about one. Huh? The Imperious Curse. Oh, yeah. Your father would know all about that. Gave the ministry quite a bit of grief a few years ago. Perhaps this will show you why. There, there's a few missteps that I think, you know, he made it a little too silly when he's floating the thing around. But overall, that scene establishes the gravity of the evilness of Voldemort and his followers. And Brennan Gleeson plays that role perfectly. Well, Brad, we finally found a positive note <laughs> when talking about this movie. And the funny thing is, like, I don't think this is an actively bad movie. But compared to Prisoner of Azkaban, I think we it, it's important for us to get our grievances out. And as we continue to do that throughout this episode, I think it's time for us to sip some whiskey. So what do you say we get into drinking this Jefferson's Pritchard Hill?
Hey, everybody, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know that I am a huge nerd when it comes to movies. But the question is, what are you nerdy about? What is a thing that makes you nerd out more than anything? Is it video games? Is it D&D like Brad? We know you have something in your life that you like to be nerdy about. And for the inner nerd in all of us, there is a place called Loot Crate. It's a subscription service that sends all kinds of different bundles directly to your door with different kinds of themes. If you're a fan of the Robots Radio Network, you may want an Elder Scrolls-themed box. You may want a Fallout box, a Marvel box. There's gaming, there's anime, there's tons of different subscription themes that you can sign up for at Loot Crate. The great part about a Loot Crate box is that they try to give you a variety of things each month that actually have more value in the box than what you would get buying each thing separately. And the best part is that we, as a part of the Robots Radio Network, are excited to be able to offer you a 15% off your first order with Loot Crate if you're interested in checking out Loot Crate, make sure you use the link in our show notes. Go to the episode that we're listening, the show notes there, and click the exclusive link that we have there. And make sure you enter the code ROBOTSRADIO at checkout. You have to do both things. Click the link and enter the code ROBOTSRADIO for 15% off your first purchase from Loot Crate. All right, so today we are checking out Jefferson's Pritchard Hill... Cabernet cask finished whiskey. This is probably the third or fourth wine barrel finished whiskey we've had on this podcast, Brad. And what Jefferson's does is they take uh, their Jefferson's Reserve, which is a little bit higher end than the regular Jefferson's. It's a 15 year aged bourbon. And then they actually finish it uh, for an extra 12 months in French oak casks that were once uh, held by the Pritchard Hill Cabernet Sauvignon Company. Now, listen, I will say I am pretty sure that Bardstown Bourbon Company's Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve was also a Cab Sauv finish. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, dude. So we've had Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve. We've had um, Bardstown's The Prisoner. I don't know if we've had an, maybe one other wine-finished one, but this Jefferson's Pritchard Hill has a lot to live up to. And I don't know if it's entirely fair for us to be judging by the bar that was set by the Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve. But honestly, like if that's all we know, then this thing has an uphill battle to fight. It, it really does, Bob. You know, we are continual cheerleaders for Bardstown Bourbon Company. They're they're an amazing place. And yeah, dude, that Pfeiffer Pavit still is up there as one of my favorite whiskeys of all time. So, you know, not much to live up to. <laughs> no, not at all. This one is only 90.2 proof. So we're not going to get the punch that we got from something like a Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve. Uh, but Bardstown's Prisoner, which we were both kind of meh about, was about 100 proof. So I'm kind of expecting this to be in the same ballpark as that. But let's get into it, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose of this Pritchard Hill finish? You know, Bob, I, I've heard people talk about leathery smelling, hmm. you know, whiskeys before, and it's not something I've ever picked up on. This one, I, I feel like it's almost like a horse's saddle, like well-worn, <laughs> well-oiled, um, just a really beautiful, rich leather smell to it that I, that I actually kind of like. You know, I, I understand that you're, intending that as a compliment, but it just sounds like such an insult. Like, you smell like a horse's <laughs> saddle. Well, I, I don't know. I guess I've been uh, I've been around horses a little bit. And yes, if the horse, if the saddle had been on the horse all day, it wouldn't smell good. Hmm. But I'm, I'm talking about like when the saddle has been off the horse for a few days and you know, somebody's oiled it and it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's in good shape. I totally understand. Smell like, doesn't smell like horse's sweat. I will say I'm not getting the leathery 
things that you are off of this. The first thing I smell is just flowers. It's floral. It's not floral in the same way that we would describe like a younger rye. Um, this actually smells like pollen to me. It's just flowers and alcohol. And then I let it kind of sit for a few minutes. And I got this really interesting n- nosing note. You know, Brad, we, we don't really talk about how we nose whiskey a lot, but I was watching a video on YouTube the other day and they, they uh, it was from Fred Minnick, who's one of the most famous bourbon experts in the world. And Fred was talking about how he likes to actually nose it once with his mouth open, nose it again with his mouth closed. And then he also kind of smells it with each nostril, just basically saying like, we smell different out of both of our nostrils. And as I was kind of doing all that with this whiskey, I got this really interesting berries and cream note. Like it, it, it had a really creamy almost like cheesecake-y scent to it. And it was some sort of a fresh berry. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I don't know if it was raspberry, maybe, you know, blackberry. I'm not sure. But it's really appealing. And I think that wine character is coming out a little bit, especially after you let this sit and, and the alcohol dissipate just a little bit off of the nose. I liked this nose a lot, but it did take a while to develop. So I'm only going to give it a six and a half on the nose. Yeah, Bob, I I think that you talking about that kind of creamy cheesecake, raspberry, I'm picking that up as well. Um, I I really like this nose, but it's not like overwhelmingly great. So Mm. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. All right. So, Brad, it's time for us to take a sip. Let's give it a taste. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't get the wine right on the tip of my tongue. Mm-mm. You know, at the very front, I think I do get a lot of that traditional whiskey. It's almost a little bit oaky, but as I kind of as I kind of swirled around a little bit and swallow, I get some of those nice red fruity notes yep. that linger. Yep. And you get a little bit of that wine. I I really like this. So I will say this: this this reminds me a lot of drinking Bardstown's The Prisoner. And it reminds me of it for this reason. It starts off with this really pleasant, sweet, like you get the corn sweetness on the very tip of your tongue. And as you kind of kick it back through your mouth, you get the red wine character. But the problem with the prisoner and the problem with this is that I feel like it kind of almost shifts into a dry red wine where the the sweetness is kind of sucked out of it. And it it ultimately makes it kind of a flat drinking experience for me. I think when you have a really, really well done wine finished bourbon, it delivers everything a bourbon should deliver. The caramel notes, that spice, some great baking spices. And you also get the sort of dry red wine notes, which act almost like bitters a little bit. Like it it just adds another character to it. When it's done not quite as well, I feel like you lose what's great about both of those things. This one gets kind of dry for me and it just... It's like it sucks all of the spice and all of the sharpness out of the bourbon, and it makes everything just kind of meh after a while. Like, it starts out really strong, and it just tapers off for me, and I don't like that. I'm actually only going to give this a five and a half on the taste. Well, I think think the taste of this whiskey is still good. I, I really enjoy where it goes. I like that dry red wine flavor. So I think I'm actually going to stick it the same. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the flavor. I think where it really fails for me is is what you said, Bob. A- as that red wine sits on your on your palate, it really dissipates every other flavor that had been happening. Mm-hmm. The finish just really struggles. There's not much of a Kentucky hug, which is fine, 
but the flavors just dissipate and I'm just left with this kind of slightly sour note in yeah. my throat. Yeah. And it's not great on the finish. I'm actually only going to give it a three and a half on the finish. Yeah, it's just basically bitter alcohol on the finish. Like the, it, it loses all of its character, which really sucks because I want this to to be what I talked about before. Like I want it to have bourbon plus wine, which is just a great combination. And this has none of that. It's just like all of the harsh ethanol that's left over is what stays on your palate. I'll give it a four on the finish, but that's about the best I can do on that one. Yeah, and then we kind of come to balance, and when you're looking for balance, uh, at least here on the Film Whiskey Podcast, we're looking, you know, how well does the nose inform the palate, and how well does the palate inform the finish? And if there's a lot of variety in that, usually gets a lower balance score. You know, for me, the nose and the palate were pretty similar. I kind of got what I expected, and then it just dried up and disappeared on the finish. Um, I don't think that this is a very well-balanced whiskey. I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10 on balance. So I definitely agree this took a nosedive, but I, I don't I don't know how to score this because you're right. It's poorly balanced, and yet at the same time, like, I got some of those notes from the nose on the taste. I got some of the things from the taste on the finish. The problem is that it wasn't a straight line. It was like nose to taste was a straight line, and then taste to finish was a straight line, but those all three things didn't connect. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a five and a half on balance. And I think I'm being generous with that. This is just a letdown for me, Brad. Yeah, it's not my favorite. Um, And and that brings us to value. Now, Bob, from what I can tell, this bottle will set you back somewhere around $80 for a fifth of this. Is that the research that you got as well, Bob? Yeah. So in the state of Ohio, they charge $64.99 for this, uh, which, you know, it's, it's less than what you said. But again, Ohio is price controlled. So- an average price for this, I would say you you should be expecting to spend $75 on this. But we go based off what we could get on the shelf in Ohio, and you can get it here for $65. Now, that would put it kind of in league with something like a Four Roses Small Batch Select. Um, it's still significantly cheaper than trying to get your hands on a Bardstown Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve, which is like $125. Here's the thing, though, Brad. Even though Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve costs twice as much as this... I think it is more than two times better than this. Do you know what I mean? Yes. 100% agree with you. So I, I don't think this is a fantastic value. Again, I'm not a huge fan of Jefferson's overall. I like Jefferson's Ocean. I think a lot of those expressions are definitely worth the money. But with the rest of it, it's just okay whiskey to me. And it, it can tend to be kind of harsh. This one actually had the opposite effect. It was just bland. I don't think it's worth $65. You know, if this was priced at $40, I think I would comfortably say, like, it's a pretty good value. Not, you know, I didn't like it, but that for what it is and for what they do to it to finish it, I think a $40 to $45 price tag would be just right for this. At $65, I'm going to give it a four on value. Yeah, Bob, I'm kind of right there with you. Three and a half on value. This is a struggle of a whiskey. It. And the thing is, it's not bad. Like we've been, I think we're going to come out at the same place with the Goblet of Fire as we are with this Pritchard (laughs) Hill. Like we're being very critical of it, but like in the end, it's an interesting whiskey. And if you had a friend pour it out for you, yeah, like try it. it. It's good. It's fun. It's interesting. But when you look at the price tag that you're paying and you think about, would I buy this for myself? The answer is no, I wouldn't recommend it. And, you know, Bob, my my final score comes out right about where I think it should, a 26 out of 50. 
Yeah, mine comes out to a 25 and a half. So I'm actually a half point lower than I was last week with regular Jefferson's. And I will say this is significantly better than Jefferson's small batch. But again, when we're taking value into account, when we're taking into account the fact that this is already a higher tier of bourbon than Jefferson's small batch, we're not comparing the two directly to each other. It really is apples and oranges. We're comparing Jefferson's with other $30 whiskeys. We're comparing this in the realm of wine barrel finished $60 whiskeys. And for that, it's, you know, it's about midway for us. We're coming out to a 25.75 out of 50 on average. And yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty accurate, Brad. Would you recommend this? No. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth trying. I think, again, you know, my old adage of like, if it's at a bar and you, you're interested, give it a try. It is definitely not worth buying a bottle of it. So I will hesitantly recommend it. Brad is not going to recommend. And I think that's about all we can say about it. It's it's not great. And I would I would point you to Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve any day of the week over this. And like I said, Bob, I, I think we might be at the same place with Goblet of Fire. But how about we jump back into the movie and see where we end up? Let's do it, Brad. All right, so that was Jefferson's Reserve Pritchard Hill Cask Finish. Uh, we're getting back into talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, a movie that we both have said is a good movie, but it's just such a step down from the third movie, Brad, that I feel like all we've been doing is just dumping on it the same way that we were just praising the third film. So maybe a good idea would be, what's something that you really enjoyed about the movie that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I think it's a little bit unfair, the, the dumping that we've done, because in the end, whenever we watch any other movie in this, you know, in our podcast, we try to divorce it from all other movies. We try to just say, you know what? This is its own movie. It stand on, stands on its own merits. Let's just consider it for what it is. And I think that when you do that, when you take away Quaron's masterpiece in Prisoner, and you look at this, you, I think that you can confidently say, you know what, you know, there's some missteps in this movie, but honestly, it's still a good movie. I, I would still choose this over Chamber of Secrets. And for me, you know, some of the scenes that I really love in this movie are just kind of simple moments of the film where you get to see the characters just be themselves. One specific moment is right when uh, Harry gets knocked by Moody into the lake and he's starting the second challenge and Neville turns around and goes, oh, my gosh, I've killed Harry Potter. <laughs> like that moment was beautiful and funny and it was Neville Longbottom at his core. And then f immediately following it, you have Harry Potter do the most un-Harry Potter like thing ever which is f use his flippers to fly up in the air and do a flip and show off. Yeah. And we're returned into this circus ringmaster moment. And you're kind of like, 
oh, this is like the best of Mike Newell and the worst of Mike Newell all in one little scene. You know, I like how we can't even get through like moments we enjoy without. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I realized that. As no, I was it's fine. It's... <laughs> I mean, that, but that's the thing with this movie, you know? And I said earlier that I think the last 45 minutes of this movie are spectacular. And that's the same thing we said with Chamber of Secrets. But honestly, I think that the whole Voldemort resurrection sequence might be the best sequence of any of the four movies so far. It's just, it's so scary and it's so well done and you understand the gravity of what's going on. And I really enjoyed the ending of the film too. Like, it feels a little rushed at times, but I really love that moment where, you know, Durmstrang is leaving and and Bobaton is leaving and Harry and Ron and Hermione kind of get a moment of respite. And Hermione, you can kind of tell the emotional weight that's on her. And she's just like, everything's going to change now, isn't it? And Harry walks over and it's like this really drawn out, deliberate motion where he just kind of shakes her shoulder a little bit and says, yes. And that's it. Like, that's all they can say. Everything is different now. And I really love that they have the characters acknowledge that. And they acknowledge it in a way that's not just like, yep, things are different, but they understand the weight of what they're saying. And they don't know what the future is going to hold. And to end on that note, it's oddly encouraging. And I think it's a really, really brilliant touch. The movie ends like very gently. And I, I really appreciated that. I do think Newell does some great things in this movie. I said earlier that dragon sequence is super well done. But then there's other areas where it's like, you know, for every really good looking CGI dragon, I think CGI Hogwarts looks terrible in this movie. I think that the little like pixie things underwater that are guarding Hermione horrible CGI. Like there's just elements of this movie where it's like, man, you can see where the money and time and effort went and you can see where it absolutely didn't go to. And so, Brad, I think it might just be time for us to give our final scores. I mean, I have more notes that I could go through, but I think everyone understands where we stand on this movie. So it might just be time to give our final verdict. Yeah, Bob. And and for me, I... I I really struggle with the final score for this movie because I got to the end and there's moments that I just really, really love. I, I know we already mentioned it, but Daniel Radcliffe's crying aside, which, you know, I don't think is totally terrible, but it's not great. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like Keanu Reeves trying to cry in the lake house. <laughs> but the, there, that scene when Cedric comes back is one of the most emotionally crushing scenes in all eight movies. Oh, yeah. And it is, it, it's just perfect. The way the band starts playing and then it kind of like trails off and you hear the instruments kind of going off tune and off kilter. It just underscores how perfect that moment was. That's the singular moment that this franchise changes. Death has entered the picture. You know, up until this point, Nobody really dies outside of the bad guys. There, there's no real consequences for Ron and Harry and Hermione or for Hogwarts students in general. That changes. And so, like, while I, I have given this movie crap, while I have very arduously tried to make the point that Michael Gambon is a terrible human being beyond being a terrible actor, I, I still like this movie. I'm still going to give it an 8 out of 10 yeah. for my final score. I, I still have fun with this movie. There's flaws, 
but there's enough great moments that I, I'm still drawn in by The Goblet of Fire as a film. Yeah, Brad, I, I'm in the same place as you. I mean, the very first thing that you notice about this movie is, once again, how different it is. And we I hate to compare directly to Prisoner of Azkaban, but just visually, this movie looks flatter. You know, it doesn't seem to have the sort of deliberate camera movements that Quaron had in the third movie. There's... It's just like they use zooms a lot in this movie. It just parts of it seem so amateurish in nature compared to the third movie. Some of the the teen movie elements where Ron's talking about looking at girls from behind and, you know, all, all the Bo Batten's girls are like really beautiful fairies and all of the Durmstrang dudes are, you know, they're, they're prototypical weightlifting dudes. They have them come in and do these like acrobatic entrances I'm like, what movie am I watching right now? Like this, this just seems so amateurish compared to the third movie. Brad, we watch these YouTube videos called Pitch Meeting from Screen Rant, and they have these recurring themes. And sometimes when something comes up in the plot of the movie and the guy is pitching his movie, the movie executive says, well, why does that even happen? And the guy just says, because. And I, I had that happen like three times in this movie. There's a part where they're like, the Goblet of Fire presents a magical binding contract that can't be broken. And it's like, yeah, but why? Because. Because the movie needs yeah. to happen. It's like, okay, whatever. Like, there's just so many contrivances here that it just kind of feels like an overall step down from the third movie. And yet, I am right there with you. It's hard to evaluate this movie because it really intensifies the stakes of the whole series overall. But it just isn't the most well-directed thing in the world. Part of me wanted to give it an 8 when it ended because they do nail the ending. But then the first half of the movie was, in all fairness, like like a 5. And then it got a little bit better and then it worked up to a really great ending. Brad, I think I'm going to give this movie a 7.5 out of 10. I do still like it. I do think it's better than most you know, young adult movies out there. I would choose it over you know, at least two of the Hunger Games movies probably and all the Divergent movies. It's just one of the weaker entries in this Harry Potter series. And when you are going up against movies like Prisoner of Azkaban, like The Half-Blood Prince, it's just a very glaringly worse movie. But not bad overall. I will say, Bob, I, I don't know about Film and Whiskey Nation, but there's a part of me that wishes we were just going through all eight at once. Because, man, we do these two in a row. And now we're four movies in and I'm committed and I'm I'm drawn back into the world that I adore. And I'm like, man, I have to wait a whole nother season <laughs> to get to five and six and then yeah, a man. whole nother season to get to seven and eight. Oh, we, man. We are going for that long term listenership, my friend. Yeah, I will stick with us, Film and Whiskey Nation, because I, I'm excited to get to the second half of the Harry Potter uh, oct- octology, octology. <laughs> I, I don't even know. What I you have would call no idea what you call series. it. <laughs> so that's bringing us out to a seven point seven five out of ten. But we want to know what you think. So please reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. If you have thoughts about The Prisoner of Azkaban and how it relates to The Goblet of Fire, let us know. You can call our phone number at 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or just leave us a message on our anchor.fm webpage. 
Next week, we're going to be switching gears. We are going to be looking at four films in a row honoring the 25th anniversary of the year 1995, and we are going to kick it off with Ron Howard's space-themed epic, Apollo 13. We'll see you next week for that one. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.